Awesome. Thanks, y'all. You guys can have a seat. Whoo. God is good. Amen. So my name is Levi Thomas. If this is your first Sunday here at Awaken, our senior pastor's name is also Levi. So if you want to come on staff, you better be named Levi. Um, so you normally get Varsity Levi. He's a little bit taller than I am. He wears the cool pop star microphone. He does it without notes. He's super mobile. Uh, so today you get JV Levi. I got notes. I'll be using them. I got the handheld. But um, yeah, so we've been walking through uh, the Advent season and <clears throat> just focusing on these different candles and their representations and in their simplest form, really all they are is different fruits of the Spirit applied to um, the Christmas season. And so this morning we'll be talking about peace, which I don't know if there's that many pastors who when they're asked to talk about peace during the Christmas season, don't feel a little bit hypocritical of like, I got a lot going on. I got to shove a sermon about peace in here and I got to do it in 30 minutes. I went over time just so you guys know. John, one of the sound techs up there texted me like wrap it up Levi, but I don't, joke's on him. I don't carry my phone up here. So I kept it rolling. Joke's on you, John. Y'all are stuck here listening about peace, and you will like it. Um, but I was, I was thinking about it. It's kind of funny how you see the relationship of chaos and peace in Hollywood all the time. I would say about 95% of Christmas movies start out with just utter chaos. Presents don't get delivered on time. Santa's crashing on the roof. Dad's getting electrocuted by Christmas lights. All this chaos, and then it ends up perfectly wrapped in a bow. It starts snowing. People start singing. The fire's crackling. They got their hot cup of cider, and it's all this just beautiful peace. People are kissing. It's just like Die Hard. It starts with chaos. Nakatomi Plaza gets blown up, but it ends with Bruce Willis kissing his wife, and it's all peaceful and beautiful. Um, and if you want to argue about that being a Christmas movie, talk to me after church. Um... And wildly enough, Scripture's Christmas story is the exact same way. Um, I love Renaissance paintings as much as the next guy. Um, I can't paint for nobody's business, but those guys get it really wrong. Just these beautiful pictures of everybody's, their hair's done. You know, Mary's a brand new mom. She just popped out baby Jesus. Her hair's done. Her clothes are clean. All the animals are super pleasant and quiet. Angels are there. Shepherds are well-shaved, and they've got clean clothes. Like, I hate to break it to you, but that's, that's not what we see in Scripture of what happened, what we celebrate as chaos night. Uh, not chaos night. Oops. Christmas <laughs> night. So I'm going to put together two different gospel accounts that uh, both have different portions of the Christmas story. Um, that kind of fill in each other's timelines. So these are both coming from Luke and Matthew. And this story is wild. It's full of violence, fleeing from oppressive rulers, foreign nations. It's, it's crazy. It's not like you're on the mantle nativity set. Like, the biblical story of Christmas is nuts. So let's go through it. We're going to start with, well, first of all, the Jewish promised land is under a military occupation, and not just any military, but the greatest war machine that the ancient world had seen up to that time, the Roman military. There was nothing 
No military that ever walked the earth like it. It would just put the Assyrians, the Babylonians to shame. There was nothing like it. And so the Jews had zero hope of militarily overthrowing the Roman Empire. So they're like, all these prophecies of a prophesied Messiah who's going to come and deliver us has got to be a conquering king who's going to overthrow the Romans. So that's just a little backdrop for what's happening on the Christmas story. So first off, to start, I want to start with two character studies that kind of kick off the Christmas story. So there's these two individuals, Zechariah and Mary. So Zechariah, well-educated, he's a priest, he's grown up in the temple his whole life, which is the center of culture, center of learning, center of worship for the Jews, and so Zechariah is, is on revolving worship there, so he's on staff at the synagogue, so well-learned, uh, so the Bible tells us that both him and his wife weren't able to have kids. And so they'd been praying for decades, like, Lord, let us have kids, carry on our name. Kind of similar parallel to Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament of just praying and yearning for a child. And so what do you think happens when the angel Gabriel shows up and tells Zechariah that, dude, I'm going to answer your prayer. You're going to have a kid, and he's going to be a baller. He's going to be named John the Baptist. He's going to be a forerunner for the Messiah. Isn't that awesome? But what is Zechariah's response to the angel Gabriel? First of all, anytime we see an angel show up in the Bible, people freak out. They think they're going to die. So every time an angel shows up, especially Gabriel, some sort of archangel, he's, he's got to be awesome. He shows up. Zechariah freaks out, and Gabriel says, hey, don't be afraid. I've got some amazing news for you. That prayer you've been praying for decades, it's going to be answered, and you're going to give birth to the forerunner of the Messiah. And what do you think the pastor on staff said? His prayer is finally getting answered. He's like, no, no, it's not. I don't believe you. His heart's first in inclination is doubt to this incredible news that doesn't happen out of the blue. It's a prayer him and his wife have been praying for years. And when the angel says, hey, I'm going to answer this, he's like, yeah, I doubt it, man. My wife's really old. Me too. But he does. And so Gabriel's like, because of that response, you're going to be struck mute until your son is born. And that's exactly what happens. So let's compare Zechariah, pastor on staff at the local synagogue, to this teenage girl in a backwoods village. Her name is Mary. She, she is engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, who's from the line of David, which we'll touch on this prophecy in Isaiah that says that the Messiah will come from the line of David. So my thinking is like all, all the Jewish ladies want to get together with a dude from the line of David of like, maybe we'll get the Messiah. This might be our chance. I don't know if that's true or not. Don't post that on Facebook or something. But uh, so we have this teenage girl in a backwoods village that Gabriel shows up. Again, she understandably freaks out. Gabriel gives his usual spiel. Hey, don't be afraid. I've actually got some really good news for you. Uh, you are well-favored, Mary. And what is her heart's first response to this? Gabriel comes to her, says, You who are well-favored, you will give birth to the Messiah. Your son will fulfill the reign of King David. He will be a Messiah for the Jewish people, and his reign will rule forever. That's wild news for a teenage girl to comprehend. Where... This, this angel says, hey, you're going to get pregnant real soon. You're going to conceive a baby. 
And what is her heart's first response, her heart's first inclination to this news? It's not doubt. If anything, she almost puts Gabriel in a place. She's like, dude, I haven't slept with my fiance. I don't know if you know how this works, Gabriel, but I haven't slept with my fiance. So she gives this declaration to Gabriel, and his response back to her is like, Mary, nothing is impossible. You are going to conceive the Messiah by the Holy Spirit. That's wild news. And what is this teenage girl's response to that? You know all the wheels in her mind are just flying, thinking about, what am I going to tell my parents? What are we going to tell Joseph's parents? Like, no, 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 I promise. This is, this, this baby bump is from the Holy Spirit. I promise. Just thinking about all the guilt and shame of what that's going to look like. What are they going to tell people they know and love? Her heart's first response is worship. I believe you, Gabriel. I know it's going to happen because the Lord has said so. That is an incredibly spiritually mature response. She blows Zechariah out of the water. This teenage girl whose life is about to radically change, be forced into adulthood, and her response is worship. Let it be so. She is somebody who knows peace. That is awesome. But it gets a little bit crazier. So they essentially have to go back to Joseph's hometown for a high school reunion. So the Caesar of the time declared that there would be a census of the entire Roman Empire. So everybody has to travel back to their homeland. So Mary, teenage, pregnant Mary, has got a baby bump. She's got to go to Joseph's hometown. They've got to tell everybody, like, hey, like, we didn't actually sleep together, I promise. Um, you know all the drama that's going to happen from that high school reunion. But what, do they ha what happens when they go to the city of Bethlehem, which is Joseph's hometown? They show up, and hospitality is one of the core values of Jewish culture at the time, of especially if they're family, this whole idea of a kinsman redeemer. You welcome them into your home. You feed them. You let them stay with you. Even in the Old Testament, it talks about if there is an alien who is sitting in your city center, invite them over for dinner. Have dinner with them. Do life with them. It was a commandment from God. But what happens with Joseph and his pregnant teenage wife? Is there family to take them in? No. The local motel doesn't even have a spare room for them. What does the motel owner tell them? Hey, you can go sleep in the parking garage. There's plenty of space to sleep there. That's essentially where full-term teen pregnancy Mary slept. My wife would not be okay with that. <laughs> so they stayed in the stable of the inn, which is essentially the parking garage for the local motel. It's not clean. Uh, it's definitely not a place you want to give birth to a baby. Uh, I know there's a couple nurses in this room who are like, I don't want to clean up that mess. Um, and so full-term Mary ends up giving birth in this stable. It's not your Christmas nativity scene on the mantle. There's no Clorox wipes. There's no diapers. There's not even a pack and play. There's a feeding trough. I guess we'll put our baby, who's supposed to be the Messiah of Israel, I guess we'll put this brand new baby there. I don't know if any of you in this room know, remember what it was like to be a brand new parent, but it's terrifying enough in a hospital where they got the heat lamp. There's a bunch of people taking care of your baby for you right away and telling you what to do. These brand new parents supposedly have the Messiah 
of the world sleeping in a feeding trough on some crunchy straw. But it gets better. (laughs) Who does God invite into the delivery room? A bunch of backwoodsmen, a bunch of shepherds who live out in the fields majority of the year. Fully bearded, not that great smelling. But God invites them into this praise party. He's like, go check this out. This is going to be awesome. And tell all your friends too. And the shepherds do just that. They show up and they worship. There's nothing elaborate about these individuals. It's not the mayor of Bethlehem showing up. It's this It's just your common everyday man that God invites into this radical miracle. And so again, not to shatter your uh, nativity illusion, but the Magi did not show up on delivery night. Uh, They didn't bring their little trinkets and their boxes of gold and frankincense and myrrh on delivery night. They very much likely showed up a year or two later. So probably when Jesus was a young toddler, And we're taking that from the Matthew account where um, the Magi show up in Herod's court in Jerusalem, which is the seat of power for Jerusalem. And again, it's not just three dudes riding camels with like silk robes on. Like these dudes were incredibly wealthy. They were incredibly knowledgeable. And so they would have traveled with an armed entourage. So they would have had guards with them that would have had a a long baggage train to carry all their stuff, their family to travel with them, probably doing some business as well if they're going to travel that far. Because they show up, and in Matthew 2, 3, it says Herod was deeply disturbed. Which is wild, right? Because these guys come into their court, and they're like, hey, we've heard the prophecy. We know what's going on. We've heard about this king of Jews who was born in Bethlehem. We want to go worship him. Why wouldn't that be so exciting for everybody in the king's court? It's because Herod... It's a psycho, and he's afraid of this usurper who's supposedly the king of Jews who's going to ruin this kind of good situation they've got going with the Romans of where the Romans don't really mess with them, and they get kind of a tax benefit out of it. Like, we're, we're doing pretty good. Herod's got his clutches on power, and supposedly there's a baby born in Bethlehem who's going to wreck all of it, probably get us all killed. No, not in my court. So what does he do? He tells them, like, hey, go find the baby and tell me about it, and I'll go and worship him. And so the Magi show up, and they obviously, again, they're warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. And so what happens next? It just gets better and better, more and more peaceful, heavenly peace. Uh, Joseph has a dream. He has multiple dreams in the Christmas account. This is one of three. It's more of a nightmare. He's woken up in the middle of the night, and an angel tells him, hey, dude, you got to go tonight. You got to leave this town tonight. Pack up your wife, get your little baby, and get out of town. And that's exactly what Joseph does. That very night, he wakes up his wife. You don't wake up a baby in the middle of the night. Any of you who are parents, you know that. That's rule number one. Do not wake up the sleeping baby. But they do that, and they don't just travel to the next county. They travel to the next country. They go to Egypt, which at at that time, excuse me is under the rule of Caesar Augustus himself is governing the province of Egypt at the time, which was a province of Rome at that time. And Herod proceeds to murder every Jewish boy two years or younger in the surrounding area. Just a psychopath. And that something we don't often think about either is that's Joseph's extended family living in that area. That's probably his nephews who were murdered that night. Not exactly heavenly peace. 
and not exactly your Christmas travel plans that you want to be a part of, that you plan out ahead of time. So anyways, Herod dies, and so Joseph's like, well, let's go home, babe. Uh, so they return to Judea, and the transition of power, Herod hands his throne over to his son, Archelaus. Equally, a murderous psychopath. That's great. Um, so Josephus, who is a Roman historian, um, gives us an account that's outside the Bible, um, but you can read about it in, um, in his historical account of Rome. He talks about Archelaus, who was the son of Herod, that at one Jewish Passover, he sent troops in and murdered 3,000 Jews at a Passover celebration. So he's equally paranoid, psychotic, mass murderer. And so, again, Joseph has another dream. Nightmare dream is a very generous term. Like, hey, babe, let's move again. <laughs> uh, let's go back to Nazareth. And so that's what they do. They pack up their new baby. I don't know if uh, Jesus has any brothers at this time, but they, they pack up their whole family again and move their whole household Again, and they come back to Nazareth, and that is where Jesus is raised for the remainder of his years before he starts his ministry. Does any of that sound like heavenly peace? <sighs> I don't know if any of you guys have Christmas travel plans, but I guarantee they're not that bad. <laughs> I know they're probably bad to go to the airport at Ted Stevens this time of year, but they're not that bad. So... How did Mary and Joseph do it? Why do we sing about the peace that happened that night? How is peace even possible in circumstances like that? The interesting thing is, peace compared to the other fruits of the Spirit, like patience, joy, long-suffering, like all of those, the other fruits of the Spirit, the world can, can understand and relate to those. They're not one-dimensional, but there's kind of, you know, Patience is kind of only one thing. It's being patient. But peace is such a dynamic phrase that really should have multiple words to define it. But we only have the one word, peace, to encapsulate not just personal peace of getting that quiet time, not just peace from one person to another, not communal, not political, not global, not military. Um, there are so many different types of peace, right? And on top of that, you have the secular or the worldly understanding of peace versus the spiritual or the scriptural understanding of peace. So that's something I want to dig in today that I feel like allows us to understand why Mary was capable of what she did, of knowing peace in the midst of insane circumstances. Um, and to understand that, as with most New Testament stories, they just get richer. If you understand the history in the Old Testament, it's like the bouillon cubes you throw in your soup that just, there's nothing like it. Put a nice broth in there to really liven up the soup. That's what the Old Testament does for the New Testament a lot of times. So there's a story in Judges 6.24 where Gideon, again, a lot like the shepherds, he is the youngest brother of the smallest family in the smallest clan of Benjamin. So in all of Israel, he's legitimately the worst candidate to pick to be a leader. <laughs> Culturally understanding, like, he's a dude of small stature. He is the last dude in Israel you want to pick to lead. And what does God do? You're the man, Gideon. And God tells him, I will allow you to defeat the entire Midianite army like you're fighting one man. That's pretty awesome. And so the night before the battle, Gideon builds an altar, and he names that place Yahweh Shalom, 
which means God is peace. Shalom meaning peace. And it almost seems a little bit like an oxymoron, right? The night before battle, you have this encounter with God and like, you know what, God, this is peaceful. You are a God of peace. And then the next day you go out and crush this foreign army. Um, but we see this understanding of God is peace fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And so to start out, in Isaiah 9-6, we have one of the names of Jesus that's prophesied that he will be the Prince of Peace. So we have this Old Testament name for God, God the Father being Yahweh Shalom. God is peace. And then we have the Son, Jesus, being prophesied as the Prince of Peace. Um, so it's up there, Isaiah 9-6. And this is a prophecy years before, hundreds of years before Jesus shows up. But Jesus fulfills every word of this. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. That's a pretty sweet promise for the Jewish people to cling to, right? And you can understand why they would think like, oh, the government's going to rest on his shoulders and he's going to reign in peace? That peace is only accomplished through conflict, right? So he's got to crush the Roman army and then we'll live in peace forever and ever. It's a pretty cool dream, pretty cool uh, prophecy to cling to. But that name, Prince of Peace, I've always thought that was kind of weird of like, Prince? Why is he the Prince of Peace? Why not the king of peace? Why not the emperor of peace? Um, and so digging into the Hebrew where Isaiah is writing this title for Jesus, Prince of Peace, I just thought it was fancy alliteration. Um, but in the Hebrew, it's also alliteration. Um, that Hebrew title is Shar Shalom. Prince being translated as Shar Shalom is peace in Hebrew. But that phrase, nowhere else in the Bible is Shar used to describe prince. I think it's a poor translation by our modern-day translators. Everywhere else in the Bible that Shar is used, it's in a military context of a chieftain or a captain, which is way cooler. <laughs> so what Isaiah is saying is that this Messiah will be a captain of peace. He will be a champion of peace. And again, it's, it's in this almost military context. But here's where it starts to get really good, where we start divorcing from secular understanding of peace and understanding a spiritual peace that the world cannot understand because the world's understanding of peace happens in conflict, and it is through earthly means of bloody conquest. But Christ's understanding of peace, His rule rests on His own bloody sacrifice. He will end all conflict, not through earthly means of bloody conquest. His rule rests on his own bloody sacrifice. His military campaign, he takes all the casualties and then takes all the spoils of war. They're yours. Take them. No peace. How awesome is that? The Jewish expectation of a military conquest Messiah that would overthrow this war machine that was Rome, God's like, you aren't dream dreaming big enough. You aren't praying big enough. I got something even bigger than that. This Messiah will come to free all humanity for all time from the global enemy, which is sin. 
He's like, your version of Messiah that you're thinking you're praying for, that's small potatoes. <laughs> I could overthrow Rome right now. I've got something even bigger in mind. How about unity with your creator? That's pretty awesome. Isaiah 26, 3, continuing in his book that he writes. This is Isaiah writing about God. And again, the understanding of spiritual peace versus secular peace. He says, he's speaking about God in this situation. He says, you will keep in perfect peace all those who trust in you, all whose thoughts are transfixed upon you. And again, in the Hebrew, that phrase, perfect peace, again, more alliteration. What a weird day. Um, what he's actually saying in the Hebrew there is, you will be kept in shalom, shalom. And anytime we see a word repeated in the Old Testament, especially Hebrew, that means there's some serious emphasis to this. Because to the, to the average Jew, the phrase shalom was a typical greeting. It was very casual. It was very common. It was very empty. Same with the Arabs in the land. Salam. They would greet each other and say hello and goodbye with salam or shalom. Um, and just say, hey, peace to you. Don't stab me. Like, peace. Um, but this idea that you will be kept in shalom, shalom, this is not a common hello. This is not just earthly peace. This is perfect peace. And how is that capable? By having your thoughts steadfast on God. That's how a teenager like Mary could go through insane trials as a brand new mother, being pursued by a murderous governor, traveling multiple times across multiple countries, and it's not in a Cadillac Escalade, okay? These are not <laughs> premier traveling conditions. But she can know peace because her thoughts were transfixed and steadfast on God. That is awesome. Don't ever discount a young person's faith just because they're young. What an incredible view of spiritual maturity we see in a young woman like Mary. Who puts this senior pastor, Zechariah, to shame. She believes God and trusts in it no matter what people are whispering behind her back or ever believe her even story. Like she believes God and walks in that truth. So cool. Okay, so moving into the New Testament now. In John 14, 27, this is the fulfillment of the Old Testament idea of peace and Jesus starting to allude to what peace is going to look like in the future, of where it's not just military conquest, that it's something even more than that. It's a spiritual conquest against sin. And so this is Jesus essentially giving his last will and testament of, you know, in our earthly mind, you write your will, you gather up all your stuff, and you give it to people you love, and they appreciate it. Be like, here's all my money I made. Here you go. Here's all this stuff I think is so important. You take it. Obviously, I'm making that trivial, but um, Jesus is taking this opportunity to say, here's the thing that I want to leave to all of you guys. These are the things that I treasure that I'm going to give to you. Is it a bucket of money? No. It's peace. The thing that Jesus wants to hand to his followers, his disciples, is his peace. It's like, come on, man. Don't, 
Like, you're not going to give me something a little bit more than that, just a concept, an idea? Jesus says in John 14, 27, I am leaving you with a gift. Here is my will and testament, peace of mind and of heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. That's pretty awesome. And if any of you guys know the stories of the disciples after Jesus was crucified, ascended to heaven. Um, the day of Pentecost came. He told them, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit falls. The Holy Spirit falls, and then the disciples begin their ministries. If you know their stories of missionary work after the day of Pentecost, it is anything but peaceful. Almost all of those dudes were brutally murdered, crucified, flayed alive, gnarly stuff, anything but our worldly concept of peace. It's like, really, God? Like, you couldn't, like, bequeath them some armor? <laughs> like, you give them peace? That's what you're arming them with? And he tells his disciples, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. You don't have any weapons, and the enemy does, and they're going to kill you. But what I give you is peace of mind and heart, and that is something the world cannot understand because it is not dependent upon your circumstances. It is dependent upon unity with your creator. And so that starts with severing your baggage of sin. If there's a kink in the hose that's keeping the flow from your heavenly father to your gifts and to your community, he's like, I want to cut that wide open. I want to make sure your cup overflows like David writes in the Psalms. He says, I am so overflowing with what God has done my cup can't even hold it all. And so what does he do? He gives it away. He gives away his love, his worship. And that is one of the things that sets David apart, is he's overflowing because he is in unity with his king because he has severed the baggage of sin and accepted who he is created to be. So it starts with severing the baggage of sin, and it ends with community in the king's court. And there is no leadership structure on this earth where a king has an open invitation to a slave like me to come into his court at any time. He says, Levi, you come on in whenever you want. You come into my courts with confidence. Man, that's awesome. But that starts with honesty, with severing the baggage of sin, and we can walk into his courts confidently because he has the owner's manual for every detail about me to run at my finest, to get rid of all the kinks and all the little malfunctions in my spirit that I've allowed to happen and operate at my fullest potential, who I'm created and designed to be. And that is only possible through his peace of mind and heart. So here's, here's the tough part is <laughs> we got to dig out the sin that we're clinging to. I spoke about David earlier and his freedom to worship, his freedom to be who he was designed to be. And that doesn't happen on accident. Psalm 32 is one of the best descriptions in the Bible about living with hidden sin, about trying to just fake it. <laughs> Which I guarantee, if you're honest, all of us know exactly what that feels like. I certainly do, of trying to hide it from people I love, of stifling my spiritual gifts because I'm ashamed, the anxiety of, like, ah, 
I can't be joyful. I, I have this burden that I'm clinging to. Psalm write, uh, David writes in Psalm 32, and this is after his experience with sleeping with Bathsheba, who was another man's wife, and not just another man, but the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who is one of David's mighty men. He's one of his champions who he's fought and bled alongside with. He's one of his 30 mighty men. He sleeps with his wife. And then he tells his general, Joab, hey, make sure Uriah gets left out hung to dry by the foreign walls and gets killed. And that's exactly what happens. And what does David do? He hides it. He tries to bury it. And here's his description. It is so good. A couple different translations I like even more than my New Living Translation. He says, my bones waste away inside of me. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. This is the antithesis of peace. This is the exact opposite of peace that God offers you. When we cling to this sin and allow the enemy to isolate ourselves in shame. It says, day and night your hand of discipline was heavy on me and my strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. But then what happens? Finally... I confessed all of my sin, dug it out, got honest with myself, with my neighbor, but more importantly with God, and I stopped trying to hide my guilt. In verse 7, I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and guess what? He forgave my sin. All my guilt is gone. This is a get peace quick scheme. <laughs> all those schemes of like, get rich quick, we all know those are, that's hogwash, but this this is how you get peace today. Get honest. Get honest with those you sinned against. Get honest with God Almighty. He offers you an open invitation. Come into my courts. Get honest, and I will overflow your cup because I know exactly how you operate at your best, that you can bless others in ways that you can't do with money, that you can't do with gifts, with time, that you can do with your spiritual gifts that God has given you. He's like, come into my courts and you will operate like nothing you've ever imagined. You will know joy and peace to the world in the ways the world cannot simply comprehend. You ever notice how Jesus treats people who are honest with him in the New Testament? The people who get honest with him? Tax collectors hated traitors who extorted their own countrymen, got honest with Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Hey, man, I'd love to have dinner with you. For today, this man has been forgiven. What about prostitutes who asked for forgiveness and everybody was ready to murder them in the streets? Jesus says, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. And they all walked away. And Jesus embraced her, said, go and sin no more people who are honest with him. You ever notice how Jesus treats people who fake it with him? The Pharisees? The people on, on staff at the synagogue? Jesus called them some really gnarly names. He says, you are whitewashed tombs. You're a brood of vipers. It's a really great slam if you want to use it. When he said that to the Pharisees, people would be like, oh, no, he didn't. Because they were faking it. They were trying to, and I guarantee they weren't at peace. Because I know what it's like to fake it in church. I know what it's like to come to church 
and have hidden sin that I haven't gotten honest with my brother or with God about. But today, you can know peace, heavenly peace. It is within grasp. Chase after it. So I want to, I'm going to close in prayer, but I'm going to put a plug for the people who sit in these seats down here. Um, if I told you somebody sitting down here would do all your financial planning and get your, uh, your uh, Roth IRA just crushing it for free, if you go talk to these people, you'd probably go talk to them. Or if like, hey, they'll, they'll, they'll do all your taxes and you'll get maximum double rebate, you'd probably go talk to them. Well, they offer something more than that, and that is the power of prayer. There are people who sit down here, the Hogsteads, they're phenomenal people. They want to pray with you. Don't waste another minute living in conflict with God. No peace. It is within grasp today. It doesn't, you don't have to go to them. You can do it on your own. But do it in community. I promise. It's phenomenal. It is the best way to live. It is so fun to be honest with other people and be honest with our Creator because He knows how to get you operating at your best. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for being the chieftain of peace, of waging the war against sin that we don't have to. You've waged every battle on our behalf and offer all the spoils of war for free. God, we are so undeserving, but we are so thankful. Thank you so much for these incredible people that we get to do life with. Lord, bless this church. Fill us up and send us out to be bearers of good news of peace in this season of hustle and bustle and rushing and spending. I pray that we would slow down and be in communion with you and your people. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your wonderful name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful Sabbath.